welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. First, apologies for the quality of this sound here. I'm travelling and I forgot to bring the microphone with me. But that doesn't stop me from really warmly welcoming you to this conversation with Dr. Stuart Reeves. Stuart is an Associate Professor in the Mixed Reality Lab in the School of Computer Science at Nottingham University in the UK. And he's also part of the Horizon Research Institute there. Again, this conversation went on quite a while, so I'm going to release it in two parts. And in part one here, Stuart reflects on the, you know, cues us into his early career, and part of that was eventually coming back to the university to take up a faculty position where he did his PhD. And he was reflecting on the conflict in trying to define your own research brand versus what he sees as the really critical importance of the collective and collegiality in academia. And this leads him to reflect more generally on the structural issues that contribute to this. And he raises the really interesting question about what are universities for and that there's really no set agreement on that and highlights the complexities of university management and the, the institutional structures around all this. So a really interesting, thoughtful, reflective discussion on the context of academia. While it's specific to the UK, I think the general principles um, will be relatable to academics everywhere. And then we'll go on in part two, where he actually then moves to discuss his own response to these challenges by becoming actively involved in governance at his university, which is really interesting. But here, enjoy part one. Stuart, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And uh, I was really interested to talk with you because I, you were saying to me, at, you know, in a conversation that we had at a conference, that that you're part of the Senate of the university, and so I was just really curious to talk to you about, you know, how you came to decide to get involved in that sort of way, and in what ways you think you can be helping to affect change. Um, but before we get to any of that, do you want to just introduce yourself? Sure. I'll try to do an introduction um, of sorts. Um, yeah, so I'm currently an Associate Professor in the School of Computer Science at the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm part of a mixed reality lab, which um, people may have heard of. Um, a research group's been going for quite a long time mainly led by Steve Benford and a bunch of others. Um, I'm also related, uh, part of the Horizon Research uh, Institute, which is also a programme of research that's been going on at um, the University of Nottingham in related to the School of Computer Science, but also other, other schools um, for quite some time, um, kind of starting the late 2000s. Um, so that's kind of funded by the Digital Economy Programme, so it's that's kind of coming to an end, that particular funding program in the UK. Um, and so I've sort of been part of that too. Um, before that, uh, I was an EPSRC fellow for a number of years, essentially 
got my own funding to research, um, I guess, broadly, HCI theory and practice, which is extremely vague, but it was quite nice as a kind of ticket to just explore what I wanted to in that roughly in that in that area mm. in that space. And just um, to just yeah. for people who aren't from the UK, EPSSC is the research funding council for this area. Yeah, yeah. So that's the Engineering Physical Sciences Research Council, yeah. part of UKRI, which is the kind of uh, funding main funding body research funding body yeah. for, for uk research basically um so there was a reorganization some time ago when they kind of brought them together uh so that's kind of what it's what it's part of um prior to that um i was a postdoc i worked at university of glasgow for a number of years um and then before that i was doing my phd also at nottingham so i came back to nottingham mm-hmm. um uh after the after that so that's kind of a really brief history of Mm. where I've been and roughly what I've been doing what was it like coming back that's a good that's a good question um yeah it's it's um you I guess I guess like probably like many people you you question whether you're going to a kind of uh, safe space a kind of place that you feel more comfortable or whether you sort of feel you should be being more adventurous or something like that but um I guess you know I had a good time in in Glasgow learned lots of things um there's lots of exciting stuff happening at different places in UK HCI research I should I should say I mean there's plenty of places where there's great really interesting work going on um, but I just found the work at Nottingham kind of drawing me back in, back in and also kind of some of the people I work with here um, had kind of long um, research relationships with. Um, but also, I, I guess I also have a lot of connections internationally with different different researchers, too. So it's not just that. But, mm. yeah, coming back is 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 sort of a, a strange thing, I guess. <laughs> How was it, you know, because you said you were a PhD student there and you're coming back now sort of like the grown-up researcher. Um, but if, did you have any, were there any issues in sort of re-establishing, re- oh, not re-establishing, but establishing a different role, set of expectations? Yeah. yeah, so I think there's always challenges about people's identities. I guess I guess we get caught up a lot in, I guess, that one of the big conflicts in I don't know whether you feel this, but one of the big conflicts, I think, in research and academia is this um, focus on the individual, but at the same time, the importance of the collective. And Mm. uh, this ties into kind of um, the idea of one uh, creating one's own research brand and those sorts of things. But also collegiality creates a bit of friction with that and... It's a big kind of mess of things which we're all caught up in. I sort of think there's a big struggle between defining yourself as part of a group, but also defining yourself as an individual. You know, I'm leading X or Y field or whatever in this particular set of uh, studies or something like that. I don't know. That's a really hard thing to do because we sort of get pushed to do both and both kind of counteract each other sometimes or work against each other sometimes so I find that quite hard to deal with and ultimately feel like I really need to kind of think about who I am and making myself into a um, notable person but simultaneously I like 
well, like I'm sure hopefully all, all researchers just have this uh, sense of um, this great sense of kind of um, collegiality or try to anyway with the importance of, you know, importance of connecting with other researchers and just learning from them and working with them. Um, and you, I get this sense more, most greatly with PhD students as well. So supervising PhD students has been really um, uh, exciting to see how collegiality really kind of works practically because you really are trying to push them into something better, obviously, all the time. You're to the point of uh, where it's no longer just kind of like a, a duty, but, you know, also something more than that. So, mm. are there any particular ways you navigated that tension? That <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a that's a tricky tricky question. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. <laughs> or anything that particularly worked or helped, or I mean, you don't have to have an answer either. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you can you repeat the question again? <laughs> well, so you talked about the challenges in. You know, the trying to establish yourself as a researcher, you talked about branding mm. and you also talked about the value of the collective and the importance of collegiality and, and the, you know, the ways in which you can learn from one another and, you know, I, I guess also entitled to that is contributing. And you just talked about it sometimes being a bit of a friction in yeah. retention in how you yeah weigh those two up. Yeah, so I think the important thing to talk about here actually that makes me think of is um, the, the sort of structures, the organisations we're part of, which 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 help reinforce some of those tensions. And we think about um, how research funding is allocated, you know, uh, bid for and allocated. That creates all sorts of complex tensions between people potentially because um, it sort of has this thing about individualising people, PIs and so on, which... Um, as part of the system um, but at the same time when you're doing things like teaching or working on research projects that's where you hit the kind of no we really need to work together there's no there's no honor in trying to uh, uh, break out on your own so I think and I guess also it relates to the way universities sort of value or at least in the UK I don't know about other universities the way they value certain um, aspects of that so obviously <laughs> If you talk to anyone in UK research, obviously you'll find that grant, you know, getting grants in is a, is a major headache and a pain, especially since the success rates are so small. Um, so that you know that you get institutional pressures to bring in money, um, and that kind of can, I guess, uh, can really uh, work against that kind of collegiality potentially. But I guess also, you know, there's it could be useful for collegiality in the sense of. Um, working together to to bring money in but ultimately there's this kind of individualization of that um so that's part of the kind of the structure university at least in the way that universities work here in the uk mm. yeah because even if you're bringing in other people you know for being able to account against what the institutions are looking for um there's extra there are extra brownie points if you're the pi of the yes, yeah. collaborative grant rather yes. than a co-I, a co-investigator. Yeah, exactly. I've also thought about um, people's different research styles and sometimes I feel like the kind of style of research I do firstly doesn't tend to cost that much money and secondly is, I don't know, it's, 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 it's not, 
it feels like it's not necessarily um, uh, going to lead to or be work well with sort of massive massive grants or maybe I'm just not understanding kind of how to frame stuff or spin stuff in such a way that it could be seen as doing that so some people's research and HCI seems to be and I guess generally seems to be tailored more towards getting kind of large research grants whereas others maybe less I mean I feel like you know sometimes there's a lot of research you can do from stuff I kind of do um, which you could do with very little very little resources Mm -hmm and get similar kind of results in terms of publications and all those kinds of things. I don't know what whether, whether you feel that as well. I, I do, I do. And I, I find it interesting that you use the language of spin, you know, because <laughs> it, that is what it can feel like when you don't feel like you actually, you just want to get on and do the work and you can do it just with yourself and maybe some students and, yeah, but if you need these grants on your CV in order to get your promotion, then how do you spin the work that you want to do? Have Have you spun the work? Like, in what ways have you spun it? Me. Yeah. <laughs> or ha- what ways have you it, seen so. it? What What ways have you seen it being spun? Let's a, we, we can depersonalize it, it. Yeah. So it's definitely a skill to be able to talk about these individual bits of research as some kind of part of a grand vision of of sorts, which again, kind of grates a little bit because uh, again, I don't know how you feel about this, but I just feel like a lot of the time you're just kind of wandering around searching for, for things uh, to do uh, that are interesting. And they, 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 you come across them. I don't, you know, I can, I can think of very few things that that I've in research I've engaged in where it's been incredibly well planned beforehand. And the most significant things, to me at least, I don't know about, you know, other people who read research I'm involved in, but to me, some of the most significant significant things I've done are just kind of complete chance or something completely minor that wasn't even funded was part of something completely different or just done in almost like, you know, quote unquote spare time, your kind of bits and pieces, yeah. bits and pieces of time that you might have. Around your um, grant writing. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, or just other kind of duties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess a struggle with the, yeah, that kind of big vision element. I guess I kind of have written a little bit about this in the past, <laughs> um, about how visions are made and created, and others others have to, of course. Um, so I think it's mm. it's difficult for us to be reflective about this, but at the same time, um, uh, work within those sorts of structures the same would go with things like rankings and league tables for instance of universities so we've had conversations about this recently within our our own universities many universities in the uk are obviously obsessed with rankings but you have many you know senior academics executives who will openly display some kind of uh critique you know some reflexivity towards the nature of rankings and league tables, but at the same time, they have to kind of play the dirty game. (laughs) So it's, you know. Yeah. I mean, what can we do about that tension? Because I, I share your experience where a lot of my, I think, more interesting publications have come out of more skunk work projects 
that haven't been funded. They've been emergent collaborations or things that have come out in just, just in discussions with people and not things that you can write up with clear goals and deadlines mm. and deliverables, you know, on the 28th of February in 2025, I will produce a pink prototype, yeah. you know, and and there are different types of research, you know, so yeah. where might we go with that to allow a, a, a more of a diversity of understandings of different styles of research? Yeah, that's a good Good question. I, I feel like you can't really think about that question answering it um, without talking about, at least in the UK and I'm sure in other contexts, the kind of nature of how governments and so on engage with uh, universities and talk about what they are. I mean, in the UK, I feel like um, various, <laughs> multiple governments that we've had um, uh, in recent days uh, they they can't really articulate what a university is for, apart from to provide um, better job opportunities, which obviously they do as a mm. as a result of teaching. Um, but I don't think any of them really have a. I don't know whether they think about it and don't talk about it. I don't think any of them have really a, got a clue about um, how to um, describe the benefits of universities beyond just this kind of narrow economic. Um, economic view essentially as a contributor to an economy again maybe this is different in other countries but that maybe value higher education differently but you know typically I think where the where the UK innovates lots of others kind of follow and by innovate I mean in a bad way like <laughs> like uh, fees and, and tuition fees and so on and uh, kind of complicated research and assessment um, yes, yes complicated research research assessment exercises um, like the the REF, which stands for Research Excellence Framework, um, but I think the one before that was the RAE, which is the Research Assessment Exercise mm. in the eighties or something like that. Yeah. Um, so there's these kind of complex administrative tools that have been developed to manage universities in this kind of yeah managerialist way, I guess. Um, looking at uh, managing through kind of streams of data and then kind of pulling levers to change change and shape how universities should be as opposed to uh like i said something that's more more about describing um uh what universities are for socially culturally and their value beyond like as i said just producing um uh, valuable economic units economic actors <laughs> i.e graduate students mm. and graduates But if you if I play devil's advocate and you know the you know, a lot of the the justification that I see around these sorts of um, managerial sort of ways is to do with accountability against the public mm. purse and prioritizing yeah. that the money gets spent on the right ways. I mean, yeah, what's yeah. the count? How do you how's, <laughs> how do you yeah how does that sit? Yeah, so obviously. Uh, money has to be accounted for um but I, I i guess i feel like things have swung so far in the direction of just taking that into account so we're not saying you know we're not saying that you shouldn't think about money because money obviously is important and does exist uh, as an as, a, as an object um but at the same time if you're only considering i mean in the uk at the moment there's been this long running discourse from governments about or the government about the the value of different degrees i.e 
how much, mm. um, you know, what the average salary of a graduate in this, you know, X or Y um, degree actually is, and then therefore that um, indicating the overall value of that particular course. So that t- seems to me taking the, that accountability to some extreme. I mean, that um, way of valuing uh, degrees obviously is completely bonkers and misses out on a whole load of other potential values which we could take mm. into account, but they're excluded from that description um so yeah so i would say i'm not saying you don't have to think about money but there are kind of there are extremes you probably shouldn't go to and i think that is tied for me any anyway to this lack of vision about what universities are for in general very little articulation uh, about that beyond this you know purely economic view again maybe other places in the world have different um different ways of, of describing that that are kind of better and more forward-looking perhaps but in Britain it certainly feels like it's pretty dismal I would say um we've got pretty a pretty successful higher education sector in general in terms of its uh international standing and outcomes if you want to look at it in that kind of uh, bean counting way but um at the same time uh yeah this the sort of funding is always an issue essentially mm-hmm. and the kind of therefore because of the nature of funding and fees and student fees and so on, it tends to be um, uh, collected together into this yeah, narrow kind of view of what value is. Mm, yeah. So what what would you argue universities are for? What would I argue they're for? Um, well, I think, I guess they have value on these different dimensions. Obviously, they offer, you know, they offer education and a kind of basic level. But if you think about all the things students do, if I, in, in, I'm just thinking very narrowly about my own discipline, for instance. Um, if you think about um, what students actually go through, they obviously need to develop socially lots of soft skills, as we call them, which actually, you know, we do teach quite a lot of that stuff on our courses increasingly. And to think about the kind of effects of um, what they're learning beyond just kind of it being purely technical, uh, technically driven, essentially, to try and push them to do. So they're learning about about that. Obviously, they're they're developing um, networks of uh, friends, acquaintances, those sorts of things and getting involved in societies and so on. So um, and the, the other thing, the other thing we sort of tend to talk about, I guess, uh, is to think about what a degree is it's not just for a job to me the the stuff you learn about kind of forms a basis of your understanding of the world I guess um from from then on so so being able to do that uh having that effect on society is kind of quite broad and wide-ranging and I'm just sort of talking about you know computer science of course Mm. in a kind of very limited way so it goes far beyond that I mean that, that that's a huge impact a massive impact on society that we're, that we're having. And at least, you know, here at Nottingham, I'm sort of seeing, I think the same is true of many other places that are teaching computer science is kind of expanding what they're about beyond just technical elements, but to think about societal impact and um, all those sorts of cultural issues that come with it and not seeing them as come somehow external, maybe things like, you know, responsibility and innovation or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. what that means um, in a critical way. So I think, yeah, I think that's kind of just covered what, what our courses I think are gradually doing, although, although it's all very slow. <laughs> Universities work very slowly. So mm. Um, because of all the pressures on teaching and numbers of students and so on and 
and, and financial issues. So, yeah. So there, there's, you know, the, what you said before about valuing them, valuing degrees in terms of salaries does not reflect at yeah. all what are the real skills that people go out with and the yeah. real impact that they can have. Yeah. I mean, you may as well just knock out most of the humanities mm. and arts and stuff, right? We, we all, I mean, this is, this is what happens with the attack on, uh, from that angle on universities by governments. Mm. Um, and some of it does get internalised by people who work in universities, but mostly it's an external problem to deal with by university management and, and mm. people who work at universities in general. And the the uh, the soft you know the so called soft skills and the societal impacts absolutely need and rely on the humanities to bring the expertise to you know we draw on that expertise. Yeah. But you, yeah. you said about student numbers as well and the pressure on that. What's what's your experience there? Yeah, so in Britain, there's this. I mean, you have to if we want to talk about the pressures on universities because a lot of the challenges we're talking about to do with working in universities in the uk at least you know these a lot of these pressures come from the we've got to do a bit you know we've got to sort of understand university finances and also like student fees and how student fees have worked in britain so um when i went to university quite a long time ago um there were fees but they were like a thousand pounds a year and i think they were means tested so this is you know um kind of early 2000s and then they've gradually risen so now um, they're about nine, just over nine thousand pounds a year for this is for undergraduates, I should point out, and that's been capped. That's the maximum fee per year for UK universities that um, you know courses can charge you essentially, and it's been the same since about twenty sixteen or thereabouts. It's not moved from that number, so you can imagine, even though that's a high number, the inflationary effect means that's now that nine thousand pounds is now worth a lot less in 2022 especially with inflation going Mm. skyrocketing and so on so this creates this kind of great pressure on universities where um, every undergraduate student every home undergraduate student in the uk is worth less and less every year so so you're getting a pay cut essentially because these cheap these tuition fees which obviously are not just for tuition they pay for the maintenance, the existence of universities in Britain. Um, so they've been completely mislabeled. And um, these, yeah, so these, these, these fees basically support and prop up universities' finances. So my particular university, you can go look at our financial reports and it's well over like half our income comes from tuition fees effectively. So when you're saying that amount of money, something that's funding a lot of your a lot of your um, university when it's being cut gradually year by year, you have to increasingly rely on other sources of funding, like say international students who are paying a full fee. So that's not you know that's that can be whatever university wants to charge. So um, universities have been recruiting more and more international students or students from abroad who can pay a full fee. So that's led to the expansion of things like you know masters. Um, master's degrees and and overseas recruitment increasing overseas recruitment uh so you can see that i mean recently not long long ago there's there was um an i a news article um i saw which was some vice chancellors from uk universities warning the government they're starting to warn the government you know some courses might have to become uh not eligible essentially they don't take any 
undergraduate students from home because essentially they cost too much money. So they were warning the government to say this might happen. We might have to close some courses to home undergraduate students. So the very idea about what the point of university is to mainly to mainly um, uh, uh, provide uh, teaching for um, you know higher education teaching for um, home students is kind of going out going out the window gradually. I mean, it, the theses who've been talking about this, you know, they're finally speaking up. But this this is a crisis that's been emerging for year. You know, it's been visible for years ever since the fees were introduced. You could argue, if you extrapolate, it could it was going to happen at some point. It became more and more um, significant. So over time, the other thing to say is over time, since you know, I don't know, two thousand nine or two thousand ten or something, the fees have gone up. Uh, kind of gradually and the amount amount of income from for the universities from the tuition fees has increased and increased and everything else has kind of stayed fairly static so that's also enabled universities to grow and grow so they get a big shot of money in the uh, money in the arm from tuition fees going up and up but um, at the moment because they're capped at this certain level and they're declining with inflation and haven't moved for for years now um, you're getting into this kind of crisis point Mm. So there has to be some kind of settlement occurring in the future. I don't know what it's going to be about how universities in the UK are going to be funded. And this this is kind of that's the origin of like a lot of these pressures where you see courses um, increasing in number, more and more international students being recruited. And, I, you know, I do I have a little bit of sympathy for university managements. Not much, but I have some um, because they these are real financial pressures. Even if they're even if a lot of the times we might disagree with some of the things they're spending money on, like capital investment and so on, the way they the way they spend their money, they are real problems that are kind of created by this this crazy crazy fees environment. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen in, in the future, um, but something needs to be done about it. Or oh, the other thing to say is actually there's a lot of different. Um, disparity between different institutions and how much they rely on fees. So I was looking at the data, and and somewhere like Cambridge rely, w- uh, relies on on fees way less than another university that maybe focuses a lot more on teaching. So in the UK, there are um, there are lots of universities which um, used to be kind of teaching focused institutions and became universities, and you know post nineteen ninety two, and many of those are still strongly teaching. You know, they serve certain purposes and offer certain kinds of courses that are very, you know, and they're very teaching oriented. So they're in an even worse situation because if you think about the the cost of, um, you know, the the percentage they're relying on this, this tuition fee income is much more lead, way more leveraged on that than some other institutions, you know, the kind of famous ones uh, like Cambridge and so on. So there's that, those pressures. So so the, the fees thing is also, you know, you could see it as a mechanism, like creating all this kind of different sorts of crises Mm. in universities and then disparities and different and, challenges and widening between those. disparities yes widening disparities mm. um it's 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 crazy it's crazy you know yeah. uh, what's what's going on i'd say and what's the you know what's the day-to-day impact on you as a as a lecturer op- trying to teach in that system i think it depends where you are in an institution so i mean where i am we're lucky enough to have quite solid and healthy student numbers almost like too many to some extent whereas other parts of you know my institution I'm sure others as well 
have declining numbers, right? So um, so it depends on where you're working. And, and mm. because of the nature of things, often those places with declining numbers are going to get lots more pressure from management to do more recruitment, obviously, to make up the numbers. And equally, the places that are able to over-recruit, you may well get encouraged to you know, just do a bit more recruitment to make up for that. Um, so there's this kind of internal balancing that has to happen. Again, I kind of, whilst there, there are, you know, these are real problems in terms of balancing finances. There are lots of criticisms one can have about the way that universities mm. are managed and how they um, spend their money. Um, but uh, those those kind of challenges still still exist. I mean, if I disagree with kind of the ways that um, the money is uh, is spent mm. sometimes. And also thinking about, you know, if you've got increasing numbers, you may have been teaching a class of 60 and marking 60 assignments, but now you're probably teaching whatever, you know, extra numbers. And if they're under pressure with finances, maybe you're not getting the tutorial support or whatever to help with that either. Yeah, so across the sector, there's been um, a lot of um, focus from you know the union and others on things like casualization. I know this is a big issue in, U- in the US with like adjunct professors kind of essentially running a lot of courses and you know they're temporary staff effectively. In um, so the UK, as well. yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. There you go. So um, the UK is kind of almost like being forced into adopting increasingly adopting this model. So there's more and more casualized staff. Um, Again, if you're in places where there's less money and, um, uh, you know, you may have a lot more casualized staff essentially running a lot of teaching activities um, with all the problems that that come with that. So, yeah, so it does. That's what essentially it results in. Mm. And we're talking about institutions that, as you said before, are very slow to change. Yes. And yeah, exactly. You're talking about a crisis that will need a settlement and a slow yeah. to change institution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I honestly don't, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a, a politician. I'm not uh, kind of into politics in that kind of way, I guess. But it does make me wonder what kind of policy solutions are going to come out to resolve this. Um, the Yeah, it, 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 it is, I, I don't know, may, maybe it sounds dramatic, but it does feel like there's a kind of coming crisis um i mean there's already there is a arguably already is a crisis mm. you know that's been rumbling on mm. a long a long a long while and now is kind of coming to a head i guess i mean it's if you mm. if you kind of a part of the unions uh any kind of union that's associated with the university you'll know all about this from um uh, you know for, for quite a long time with things like spending on staff gradually going down over time versus overall income so there's the, the, so whilst I was saying kind of sympathizing to some extent with um the way universities are run by certain executives mm. um in charge and leaderships there are choices they're making about how they distribute that money and often it, it se- seems to be um away from teaching activities in general mm. if you look at the actual data mm. yeah do the people in management positions tend to come from academic backgrounds or not just curious in in uh yeah that's a good question i I think um i think there sort of tends to be um mostly people who've 
um, come from academic backgrounds. But I think what okay, so this is another dynamic we have to talk about about universities. Again, this is UK specific, but maybe it applies elsewhere. It sort of feels like um, for there are people who who want to get onto the kind of quote unquote management track, whatever that means, um, and that actually just kind of separates them, detaches them from the kind of the rest of the body of staff at least academic staff and teaching related staff and research related staff um uh, wherein they kind of then that's their career essentially becoming a um a manager of a university so that's kind of the culture we've created again so you could this, you see this across a lot of universities where there's um executive boards of different kinds um there's different sorts of um uh, other kind of high level managers um in the university and then it seems like going back is not really possible. You just have to go forwards to the next institution. Maybe you'll get a higher rank if you leave to mm. manage another institution and so mm. on. So it becomes its own yeah. activity. Um, and so this has created a kind of detachment between um, kind of rank and file staff and, yeah. and management staff. And, and I don't think, again, I'm going to be trying, trying to be sympathetic as possible to those staff because they, you know, many of them, were successful academics at some point um and they've chosen to go a management route um i i do think you know many of them do genuinely want to improve things but often they just i think often it feels like they're just not very good at doing it because mm. that's not really you know they were good as academics yeah yeah <laughs> and so it does not necessarily yeah, it's attention because people who may have those skills don't have any deep understanding of what it's like on the ground to be the people yeah. yeah, the rank and file delivering on the agenda yes. of the university. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how you solve that about unless you kind of think about changing university governance mm. or something like that or the ways that um, universities are, are, are run in general. But obviously you have a lot of pushback against that because people have uh, vested interests in keeping things as they are, yeah. even if they do genuinely want to improve universities and at the same time also i would also be sympathetic about these kind of external forces pushing on them this kind of um mm. financial price the kind of ongoing financial crises yeah. um which are emerging with the universities in the uk and, and 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 so on it's a really complex space isn't it yes it's super so, complex you know, this, yeah <laughs> yeah how do you respond personally like is it sort of despair <clears throat> or curiosity or hope or I don't know or do you just yeah. put your head down and get on with it or what and that's where we leave it and how he responds personally is the subject of what we go on to talk about in part two of this conversation and it's really quite an amazing story of someone who's again just put themselves out there to be part of making a difference so I look forward to bringing you part two soon you can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen. Mm-hmm.